This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messner. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Monica Ali has joined us. It's been a while since her last novel. Love Marriage is just out. It is a portrait of a family in the UK, and it is amazing, this book. It is wonderful. Monica, thank you so much for joining us. Would you set up Love Marriage for listeners? Would you let folks know who these characters are? Absolutely. So Love Marriage tells the story of Yasmin Garami, who is 26 years old. She's a junior doctor at a big London hospital, and she is engaged to be married to Joe, who is a fellow doctor, who's handsome, charming, rich, also very kind and sensitive. But then Joe does the unthinkable and cheats on Yasmin. Yasmin is obviously distraught, but then Yasmin goes off and has revenge sex, which shocks her even more because she's always thought of herself as a follower of the rules, a good person, a good girl, and she's nurturing now this secret that she's cheated on Joe as well. And unlike Joe, she does not confess to her infidelity. So it's really eating her up. Little does she know that Joe is nursing an even bigger secret of his own. So at the start of the book, Yasmin really seems like she's got her life together. She's got a plan. She knows what she's doing. And then her life implodes and explodes all at the same time. She has a younger brother too, whose life is complicated and their father is a little disappointed that little brother's degree is in sociology. <laughs> Dad's a doctor. So, you know, this is part of the immigrant story that we're familiar with. But also Arif, he has a secret and his secret is his baby daughter who's about to appear. <laughs> but also he is having a rough go of things. He has been called out while he was working on his degree in college. He was called out by the UK security services and accused of terrorism. And so he's really angry at the world. He's really angry at his parents. Home life is really tense and the kids are still living at home with their parents. But we open the book as Yasmin and her parents are going to Joe's mother's house for dinner. And there are a couple of details that Yasmin drops where she says, well, we're leaving two hours early to basically get across town. And even though dinner will be provided, her mother has done hours and hours of cooking and has packed up lots of snacks. And Yasmin doesn't see this as a gesture of goodwill or shared culture or anything else. She's just like, my parents are embarrassing me. My parents are embarrassing me. My parents are embarrassing me. <laughs> you are writing about this exact moment in the UK. You're writing about family and generational divides. And also, frankly, this is a good old fashioned comedy of manners in many, many ways, right? Yeah, particularly in the first half of the book, mm -hmm. I would say there was this sort of 
comedy of manners. Mm-hmm. There are two different worlds here that are coming together for the first time at the opening of the book. There's the Guramis who are middle class Indian origin, living in a nice suburb of London, as you said. The father is a doctor, the mother is a housewife, homemaker. But they are going off to meet Joe's mother for the first time. Harriet, Joe's mum, is a feminist icon, an academic, a writer, a well-known figure who is particularly well-known for a memoir about all her lovers, all the men and the women. And Yasmin, therefore, is in a sort of agony of anxiety about this first meeting. I think any bride would be a little bit anxious in the situation. For Yasmin, it's heightened not only by the differences in culture, but also the differences in class. So Harriet is not just ordinary middle class, she's properly posh and she lives in a very wealthy part of London called Primrose Hill. And she's very out there. You know, it should be quite a lot for any family to take, let alone a sort of conservative Indian family. So she's got all of these anxieties, but then actually what happens is something rather different. Harriet embraces the Garamis. She's delighted with her nieces, Tiffin tins and Tupperware boxes of curries and samosas and so on. And she takes Anissa, the mother, under her wing and... So this turns into Yasmin's worst nightmare because Harriet starts to interfere in all of the wedding plans. The friendship that Anish and Harriet develop was a little bit of a surprise. I don't want to reveal too much, but it's something that Yasmin struggles with because not only have the moms taken over her wedding planning, suddenly there are religious elements to her wedding and suddenly there are tents and locations and Here's dad saying, but it's my job to pay for this. And dad's not religious. And dad is just saying, well, no, 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 I have to take care of this. And Joe and Yasmin are kind of sitting in the corner saying, okay, all of the parents can have all of the things that they want. And it goes from there. But part of the fun of this book is also the bits of seriousness where we see Yasmin struggling with her decision to be a doctor, with what's next, with how she feels about marriage. And her little brother has a very different path from hers. He is not a doctor. He has a degree in sociology, which is very disappointing to dad because dad keeps saying, well, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Why do you have that degree? The family's mythology is really layered and smart and complex and often very funny But you can't really have the comedy without the tragedy, right? Well, I'm glad you agree. I think um, comedy is really important for me as a writer, as a human as well. There are some dark and difficult things that happen in the book that are referred to in the book. But it's often comedy and humour are the way of getting through those things. And comedy also keeps us intellectually honest. I think without it, the capacity for humans to delude themselves is almost limitless. And with comedy, we can just embrace all of our folly and flaws and endless striving and just hold it with compassion and tenderness. There's also 
more than one moment where the reader's going to understand that Yasmin is really angry and she doesn't know it. And she has no idea what to do with it. And there are other characters who are much more in touch with their sort of emotional landscape or people who are much more aware of that person's landscape. But it's interesting watching her because she's a very modern young woman. She has her own life. She's, yes, she's balancing, you know, living at home and having a job that she may or may not love, but we're not sitting in a Jane Austen novel. And yet here she is, (laughs) unable to recognize her own anger. Yeah. I think she gropes her way towards it, doesn't Mm -hmm, she? So mm -hmm. she is often suppressing her own desires, her own feelings, her own reactions. But then I think we see her opening up to those things. And whether that's within the sexual relationship that she develops with her colleague, not Joe, which surprises her and surprises her in the way that she has hidden her own desires, even from herself, or whether it's in the way that she tackles a patient's relative who asked to see a British doctor. And Yasmin actually challenges this person and gets herself into a lot of hot water because of it. She gets sent on a sensitivity training course because this woman feels that she's been called a racist. In fact, Yasmin's never used that word, but Yasmin has nevertheless called her out. So I think we see Yasmin on a bit of a journey with allowing herself to feel the things that she feels and then voice the things that she fails. What surprised you about Yasmin as you were writing her character? Was there anything? Yeah, I mean, I would, uh, <laughs> I think I was surprised, honestly, when the relationship with her colleague mm-hmm. off. So originally I thought that she would be so eaten up by guilt within the first encounter that that could not linger around, that she would be compelled to either reveal all or cut ties with Joe or whatever it was. But actually, as she got deeper into that relationship, I found myself not knowing whether she would even end up with Pepperdine. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. because I didn't know, lots of readers have been giving me the feedback that they didn't know either, you know, what was going to happen with that relationship and the relationship with Joe, which of them she would end up with. And we are not spoiling that. Not telling. (laughs) Not spoiling that here. Because it is one of the great pleasures of her journey is watching her decide what marriage means for her, what partnership means for her. There are a couple of different points Actually, where, you know, someone asked at one point, is there marriage without risk? In Yasmin's family, there is this sort of mythology about how her parents met. And of course, it was a love marriage, which at the time would have been a really radical act because they were of different classes, too. So all of them are coming from different perspectives. But here we are, the 21st century, and we're still talking about marriage. (laughs) And everyone has a POV on this. Yes. Just to make it clear for listeners as well, Love Marriage, the title, refers to 
the founding story of the Garami family, which is that this poor boy, Shokat, Yasmin's father, who grew up in great poverty, marries the girl from the well-to-do Calcutta family. This was a love match. And that for Yasmin is sometimes a source of strength, as in when she talks to her mother about some doubts and troubles that she's having with Joe, having found out about his infidelity. And she takes what her mother is saying as meaning, well, love will conquer all. And she thinks about her parents' love marriage as a source of great strength. But also it can be a source of frustration and disempowerment because it's something then to live up to. You know, it can be a constraint as well as a source of strength and freedom. Yeah, I'm always playing around with those concepts of what is really a freedom and what looks like a freedom, but is actually a constraint, I think, within the book. And Joe actually thinks marriage is going to fix him. He's working on some stuff of his own. And as you hinted earlier, it is big. It is very, very big. But he genuinely believes that his past is behind him and he's going to settle down and he's going to be married and it's going to make him a good husband and a good father simply because he has deemed it so. He so wants that. He so wants that for himself and for Yasmin. And it's kind of eating him alive, the possibility that he might end up destroying this idealized notion that he has of how perfect life will be once they're married, that will cure him of everything that ails him, which is why it's necessary for him to go into therapy, (laughs) to start to understand himself. You see, at the beginning of the book, Yasmin rather envies the Sangsters, Joe and Harriet, for how open they are, how they discuss everything, unlike the Garami household, where things can't be discussed, where sex is never mentioned, as it says in the opening line of the book. But as the story opens up and continues, what we and also Yasmin comes to understand is that the Sangsters are just as messed up, if not more so, than the Garamis. And in fact, Joe and Harriet, they can't be open and talk freely about the the most important things within the family because they don't understand the things (laughs) that are most important. So, yeah, and again, the idea at the beginning of the book that, which I'm sort of playing with these tropes of South Asian culture is more closed and therefore in some ways more, in inverted commas, backwards and the more progressive, liberal, open Western model is therefore freeing. But actually, some of Joe's so-called freedoms are anything but free, really. He's actually shackled by a lot of what on the surface looks like freedom. And the same can be said for Harriet. Mm -hmm. And the same for Harriet. In a lot of ways. And Yasmin's little brother, Arif, things come to a head between him and dad. Dad essentially throws him out, cuts off his allowance, everything is done. And at that moment, Anissa decamps to Harriet's. She leaves her husband. And here's another moment where you've got this white guy pining for marriage and essentially a stay-at-home mom decides, yes, I'm leaving. This is not okay. And she says to her husband, if you don't make things right with our son, I'm not coming home. Dad, of course, does not handle this well. 
But Yasmin is struggling with this idea, too, that her mother has decamped. And she's like, why are you leaving dad? Why are you leaving dad? You're playing with all of these sort of role reversals in a way. I mean, Yasmin is horrified on a number of different grounds when Anissa moves in with Harriet. First of all, she's worried that she will get stuck with her father because he won't be able to manage alone. And secondly, she feels that Harriet is sort of using Anissa almost like a pet, you know, or an exhibit, a zoo exhibit to show off to her friends liberal credentials and that she's going to exotify her and do this sort of integration by steamroller approach. And Harriet, she can be annoying and grating and just too much um, in your face. But Harriet, there's more to Harriet than and to Anissa, then Yasmin really realises at first. And I think Harriet has a good heart. You know, you could see her on the surface as an example of white privilege, but there's more to her than that. You know, she's got her own problems, her own demons, her own struggles, and she makes a genuine connection with Anissa. And I think she totally redeems herself in the way that she facilitates Yasmin's ability to see her own mother as the truly extraordinary person that she actually is. I have to say, I really love Anissa as a character. But I'm wondering, Yasmin is so much a heart of this book. Why not write this in the first person? Why why write it in the third person? That's a good question. I mean, the, we get three different perspectives mm-hmm. in the book. I mean, Yasmin is definitely given the most airtime. And then we have the perspective of Sandor, who is Joe's therapist. And it's only via Sandor that we get Joe's story. And then we have Harriet as well. Through a, a number of diary entries, we also get her perspective. Why didn't I write this as a first person? I don't know. I don't even think I'm comfortable writing in the first person, but I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a fair answer. It's just her path is so much more complicated in some ways than, say, Harriet's or her mother's. I wouldn't argue, honestly, that it needed to be written in the first person, but there's something about Yasmin that I keep coming back to, and it might simply just be her voice. Was she the first character who showed up for you? Both Yasmin and Harriet. So I was working on two different stories, those two main characters, and I wasn't sure that either was going to be turning into a book. But then I had this light bulb moment when I thought, well, what if I bring them together? What if I brought these two different worlds together? And then everything clicked for me. And I knew it was the book that I had to write. I knew it was going to be a lot of fun to write as well. And there was a sort of common thread between the two stories, which was that that they both looked at these women's love lives and sex as a universal impulse or near universal, I would say, that could tie these very disparate worlds together. So that was how I got into the book. And as soon as I had my first sentence and the Garami household, sex was never mentioned. Then I was off and running. You at one point had published four books in a very short amount of time. And there's been a bit of a 
break between your last book in 2011 and now this one. So did it take you 11 years to write this book or were you just sort of noodling some other things and then this book showed up when it showed up? I mean, I should claim that it took 11 years. Donna Tart does that, doesn't she? <laughs> no, I stopped writing for a while because I had a major loss of confidence. So I just stopped. And then when I wasn't writing, I got depressed. And then that fed into the lack of confidence. So it was kind of a downward spiral for a while. But I came out of it. And actually what helped me to come out of it was I started trying to write for television, basically because I was watching a lot of TV drama, as depressed people sometimes do. So I thought maybe I can do that. And I spent some time teaching myself how to write screenplays. And then I worked with a number of production companies, had scripts commissioned, nothing ended up on screen, but I really enjoyed the process. And it just reminded me that I need to be writing and no matter what. So that kind of got me back into writing prose and starting this novel. And now I'm adapting love marriage for television. So I feel like that apprenticeship that I served has not gone to waste. You know, it's come back round again. That's really excellent because screenwriting is such a different art from novels. You have to strip everything down to the bones essentially and just keep moving the story forward, but you have to hand it over then to set designers and actors Mm -hmm. and let it go. Yeah, well, that will be exciting. You know, the main challenges are structural, really. So things that might happen later on in the book might need to be brought forwards or things that happen off stage in the book need to obviously be seen and visualised. But, you know, the great thing, one of the great things about this process is that I wrote and wrote and wrote for my first draft. I wrote 240,000 words, which I knew was way too long. And then I cut and cut and cut until it was a more manageable size. But some of those scenes that I had to cut, I can now bring back for the TV version. So that's a real pleasure. And I'm just enjoying spending time with Yasmin and Joe as well. They are a genuinely unforgettable set. Of characters. And I can see why you wouldn't want to leave, especially the two of them, why you would not want to leave them behind. I can see someone besides you is also going to have a lot of fun bringing them to the screen, I think. Do you have a favorite moment, maybe from even their relationship, but a favorite moment from the book that made you think, oh yeah, this is it. Beyond the first line, which obviously is a terrific first line. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh, well, I mean, There's many scenes that I really enjoyed writing and there were some in particular that I was dreading writing, namely the sex scenes, (laughs) because I'd always been able to get away before without writing any sex scenes in my book. So with my first novel, Brick Lane, for instance, the heroine does have an affair, Nazneen has an affair, but it was in keeping with her character that I could just close the door when she gets in bed with her lover. That was in keeping with her character. But with Yasmin, sex is such an important part of her growth as a woman, as an individual. She's finding 
Now, who she is, who she could be, who she wants to be, how she wants to operate in the world. And I knew I could not bottle out of writing the sex scenes. <laughs> so I was absolutely dreading, you know, I was, I was sweating. There's an award in the UK called the Bad Sex Awards. <laughs> <laughs> which is the award that no writer wants to win. So I really wasn't looking forward to writing. There's only two scenes. Mm -hmm. But actually, when it came down to it, I think because it didn't feel gratuitous, because it's so integral to the character development, it was actually fine. And then particularly the period sex scene, I had great fun writing it. Pepperdine is, he's an interesting dude. He's not quite... What I would have expected. Did you know who he was when he showed up or were you just kind of like, all right, let's see where this goes? Because I know we've talked a little bit about not knowing where Yasmin was going with him per se or ultimately with Jeff, but he's a very unflappable guy. Mm, quite enigmatic. Mm. At, at my publisher's Virago in the UK, there is a Pepperdine fan club. They've all got the hots for Pepperdine. <laughs> I mean, there's something very, very straightforward about him in comparison to the other characters. What you see is what you get. And Yasmin can hardly believe that. She's not used to that. So I think that's part of his attraction, I think. He points out that she's got a mean streak and she's really horrified. Like, what, me? <laughs> really? And he calls her out for being sometimes a little bit on the childish side or peevish or whatever. And again, she has a hard time accepting those home truths. But I think that's maybe why lots of readers have really warmed to him, because he doesn't take any of her shit. Part of it for me, as I was reading too, is that he is more emotionally mature than she is. And, you know, of course, women for centuries, we've been given this rap that we're much more in touch with our emotions and we know what's going on and we just want to take care of people and blah, blah, blah. And in fact, he even says it to her at one point. He's like, you're so unemotionally available. What is going on? Like, uh, or excuse me, he's, you're so emotionally unavailable. And she just looks at him like he has nine heads and it's actually, he's not wrong. Again, I want to come back to the fun of all of these role reversals. And when I say role reversals, I mean, you're sort of just tweaking people on the ear and saying, well, this is what we've thought for so long. Why is this still conventional wisdom? I mean, you're playing with immigrant narratives. You're playing with marriage and gender and age as well. And ultimately, we're always kind of talking about power and who has it and who doesn't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how we find it. Well, I think also about the assumptions that we all make about each other. And, you know, we can't get through life without making assumptions. But sometimes it's a good idea to just slow down, step back and test the truth of those. That's what Yasmin is also learning as she goes along. Yeah, she really likes to be right. <laughs> She's not on the road, but man, she really likes to be right. And it's fun to see her evolve. As some of us like to say, she leads with her chin <laughs> a lot of the time. But I think ultimately she gets a happy ending. And that's kind of all I'm going to say. But I think the book ends on a hopeful note for a lot of folks, actually. I, I think it's... An optimistic ending, isn't it? It's a hopeful ending. And I don't think that gives away, as you say, mm -hmm. what actually occurs. 
Can we talk about some of your literary influences for a second? Not just the influences maybe on this book particularly, because obviously you will see and experience that sort of drawing room comedy and sort of that class awareness. But who are some of the writers you turn to just as perennial favorites? Well, uh, Jane Austen, as you might guess. <laughs> and I think, you know, she's been a particular influence in the writing of Love Marriage. So she wrote constantly about courtships and engagements and marriage. But through that supposedly rather narrow domestic prism, she actually showed us a lot about the society of the time, about money. She's very precise about who has how much, about class, about the position of women and so on. And I think that even though we're on a totally different landscape now in London with love marriage and it's multicultural and Yasmin's a young professional woman and so on, there's still a lot around the family dynamics and the customs and rituals that surround an impending wedding that can be a very useful lens onto some of those wider aspects of society. So I definitely cite Jane Austen as an influence. And then some of my favourite writers that I go back to time and time again, Tolstoy, can't imagine life without him. And then a really diverse range of writers from, you know, Naipaul to Graham Greene, Balzac, Flaubert. I mean, so many, really. But I go back to the classics a lot. Are you looking for story when you're doing that? Or are you looking at their characters and how their characters respond to the world? Because each of those is a very specific reading experience. Am I allowed to say both? Sure. <laughs> Whatever the answer is, is the answer. <laughs> I write from character and I'm drawn to writers who can really bring that complexity and depth and nuance that makes you feel that you've really got inside the head of this other person and you start to see the world from their point of view. But I am not averse to story. I do think we're hardwired for story. We've been telling stories since caveman and cavewoman era and story is how we make sense of our lives. So, yeah, for me, it's both. So we've talked about influences. We've talked about your break to work on screenplays mm -hmm. and essentially learn a new craft. But what is it about writing prose that you really love the most? For me, the novel form is the greatest expression because it has that room, that latitude to really explore the full complexity of human existence and psychology and diversity. And there's no other single format that I think comes close, even with the amazing ways in which television drama has grown and become more complex and more satisfying. I still think that it's the novel form that did it first and still does it best. I love that answer. So you're working on the screenplay, obviously for Love Marriage, but is there another novel in the works too? 
No, <laughs> no, I'm on book tour in Germany at the moment, and I'm talking to you. And there's all the summer literary festivals coming up across the UK. So between that and the screenplay and family, I haven't yet. You're making me feel guilty. I feel like I've got to excuse myself, <laughs> but I no. haven't yet started work on. No, no. <laughs> You're just taking notes. You're just taking notes for whatever the next thing is. Oh, no, don't feel guilty about it at all. I just didn't know if you were one of those writers who always has something in the works kind of thing as the new book is coming out. There are some writers who really prefer to do it that way. And I just ask because I never know what the answer is going to be. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm working on a short story for... Farago, the publisher's going to turn 50 next year, and they are doing a, a collection of short stories. The title of each will be a synonym for Virago. So that's what's cooking at the moment. That sounds very cool. I did not realize that they were staring yeah. at 50. That's not a small thing. Monica Ali, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The new novel is Love Marriage, and it is out now. Thank you so much. It's been such fun talking to you today. Hey there, bookworms. It's time for your TBR top off. Well, we'll recommend three titles for you to check out when you head in to pick up Monica Ali's highly anticipated new novel, Love Marriage. My name is Margie, and I'm coming to you from my store in lovely Northville, Michigan. And with me, as always, is my partner in crime, Mark. Hi, Mark. Hey, Margie. I'm coming to you guys from Cincinnati, Ohio. Very excited to talk about books today. And I have to admit that Margie, right before we got on air, sufficiently shamed me for not having read Brick Lane yet. I've had it for a decade. It is promptly moving to the top of my TBR pile so that I can jump right into love marriage. So. Oh, and it deserves that spot. Let me tell you, mm. it is just an excellent, excellent novel. Wonderful. But I know you've got some stuff to recommend anyway, so don't be silly. Oh. What, what, what have you got for us? Always have something to recommend. So I'm going to start off with a book that is quiet and devastating and lovely. And the book is On Chesil Beach, by Ian McEwan. Very much like Ali's love marriage, this novel explores how relationships and the expectation versus reality very rarely line up. You get to follow newlyweds Florence and Edward. They are spending their first night together at a beachside hotel. Now, this takes place in the early 60s. Their bubbling anxiety is about losing their virginity and embracing their marriage as a sign of maturity is relatable and layered and very quiet, almost annoyingly so, because McEwen is very good about getting characters to not say the thing that they're supposed to say that would solve all of their problems. So Edward is very nervous that his initial romantic advances aren't really getting the responses he would expect. And meanwhile, Florence is nervous that her complete disgust at intimate contact is going to disappoint her now permanent partner. All of these things that, that are left unsaid that are just hovering in their brains and hovering in the reader's minds just makes for a more tense than I expected story, but is also so lovely and full of compassion and a lot of a lot of heart. And these two innocents have so much to say, and I just want to grab them by the shoulders and say, say it, say the thing. But I love this book so much. So please pick up On Chesil Beach by Ian McEwan. 
That's wonderful. I always find it as a good sign when you want to talk to the people that are in the book. Yes. Talk to, (laughs) scream at, you know. Well, for me, my book is called Infinite Country by Patricia Engel. Mm -hmm. And while love marriage has a focus on two people from different cultures coming together, Infinite Country is about two people from the same culture who are torn apart. Moro and Elena fall in love in their native Bogota against a backdrop of civil war and social unrest. After the birth of their first child, they attempt to move to the U.S. on a temporary visa to try and gain more safety and opportunity. Two more children are born on U.S. soil, but Moro and Elena are still undocumented. The family is splintered when Moro is deported back to Colombia, and Elena, realizing the impossibility of working and raising three children, sends her youngest, Talia, back to Colombia to be raised by her grandmother. So now, Moro cannot get to the U.S., and Elena cannot return to Colombia, or she won't be able to re-enter the U.S. This moving and timely story covers the span of 20 years and encompasses all the trials and tribulations of a couple who want to make a better life, but also shows the hope and belief that even at its smallest trickle can keep people moving forward. So for an incredible story of family and the meaning of home, please read Infinite Country by Patricia Engel. That's beautiful. And I'm so glad that you chose that book because, well, not only because it's fantastic, but it relates kind of closely to the second book that I'm going to talk about. Ah, We're so in Uh, steps. I mean, just mind fine (laughs) left and right. I love it. So the book I chose is ultimately about a relationship between two people, but tells a much broader story using magical realism. And the book is Exit West by Mohsen Hamid. This book is truly wonderful. I have not read anything like it before. It is, like I said, a story about two people, but it is embracing the immigrant experience and showing it in a way that I think anybody can pull from. So we follow Nadia and Saeed. This is the blossoming couple. They are just starting to kind of spend a lot of time together. They're also the only two characters in the book who are named, which I think is nice and significant. They are living in an unnamed home city that is being eroded by political unrest and escalating violence. You can come to your own conclusions on where that country might be and where they might be initially settled, but it's best just to go with the flow of this book. So Nadia and Saeed are really starting to see their city falling apart around them, and they begin to hear rumors of these mysterious doors appearing all over the world. These doors open up to a completely different part of the country or a different part of the world altogether. So let's say you're in your Cincinnati office, And this black rectangle shows up one day on the side of the wall. You step through it and all of a sudden you are in a bathroom in a hotel in Tokyo. So that's sort of the conceit of this plot device that the author has used in that there are these doors that can open up to other places. So Nadia and Saeed discover a door themselves and use this to really escape their war-torn country. It places them on an adventure and a journey to find ultimately a new home. This book is absolutely brilliant. Not only is it a very realistic love story, these two people just are so honest in the way that they interact with each other. It's very identifiable by anybody who's ever been in a relationship, which is pretty much every adult reader. But it's also a wonderful parable about border crossing when 
borders are not a factor. So what would that look like? It's truly magnificent. I love it so, so much. So please, please pick up Exit West by Mohsen Hamid. Oh man, I've wanted to read that for so long. And that was the best description I've ever heard. Now it's going to be on my TBR. Do it. Well, I guess it's time for us to wrap up. So (laughs) thank you so much for listening to Port Over. We appreciate all your support. Please like and follow so you never miss an episode. You can follow Barnes & Noble on social media at Barnes & Noble. My name is Margie. I'd love it if you followed my home store at BN Northville. And you can find me on Instagram at Margie Bookbrain. And I am Mark. You can find me at my home store at BN Westchester or take a peek at my Instagram at bookmark79. Lovely. Thanks, everyone. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.